we shot it, but their body still moves after a while. So we had to put it on the table, fold it down, and we had to find the heartbeat and slip a needle under the scale and draw blood from its still beating heart. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast, episode 136. Yes, I did look that up today just for fun. I was about to say, why did you make up that number? But yeah, okay. I feel like we need to write that somewhere. So in like a month when we're asking what episode are we on, we have some sort of a... Or you can go to SoundCloud and see how many tracks that you oh, uploaded it and that. it says 136. Gotcha. gotcha. That makes it easier. Okay. Forcitypythons.com. If you guys want to check out, we have some cool animals that are available. We have a lot of king snakes hatching or available rather <laughs> and a lot of corn snakes hatching so if you guys are interested in colubrids of all sorts we have them coming and we have eastern black king snakes coming soon too which is really cool yes and if you want to see those snakes in person join us on saturday at the haver de grace all reptile show in haver de grace maryland um what is that like an hour south of philly hour and a half it's an hour and a half about an hour and a half Yes. Um, so we'll be up bright and early 5 a.m. probably on Saturday, yeah. making that little drive. I'm trying to convince Joe to pack all the snakes up the night before, so I'm not waking up at like 2 a.m. Yeah, but you know you got to clean them all right after. You We've got lucky. We did it one time before. None of them went to the bathroom, and we got lucky. But I don't yeah. know. This is a rant. I mean, not a rant. Um, <laughs> Tell me more a about these corn snakes going to the bathroom. Uh, do you want to introduce our guest? <laughs> yes. Today, we have on a wildlife biologist. It is Kyla Garden. So, Kyla, welcome to the show. And can you give us a little overview of what you do? Yeah, thanks for welcoming. Um, so, I'm a biologist. I've been doing a variety of field jobs um, for the past four years since graduating from Humboldt State University. Um, there, I majored in Spanish education and wildlife biology, but I kind of took the science uh, realm. And so now my current job has me working with special status species of reptiles and amphibians in the Central Valley. Um, primarily, we work with giant garter snakes, California red-legged frogs, California tiger salamanders, and western pond turtles. I'm sad to admit, I have never heard of half those things. No way. You just, <laughs> How dare you? That's pretty well, embarrassing. Well, California, you know, endemic. So if you were Californians, then I'd be pretty disappointed. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. There's my past. I've only been to California like twice. Yeah. But is it true that you didn't really get into herbs until college? Um, officially, yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you're kids, you're into everything. I, w I would grab lizards and snakes, but I'd also look for, you know, birds and worms and coyotes and all that. So like as a kid, I was really interested in it. But when I started going to college, I was more interested in mammals and mammalogy. I was like, oh, my dream is going to be to work with wolves, you know, like every kid's dream because they're so iconic. They're these like totally iconic species. And then uh, it was just by chance that I took a herpetology course and it was hard, like it kicked my ass, but it totally blew my mind. I mean, it's just fascinating, really cool stuff. And I just went from warm blooded to cold blooded and got my first field job doing that. And here I am. 
Cool. And I mean, that is obviously so different. So very, what, very what kind of drew you to it initially? To herpetology? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I was kind of thrown into it just because that's the course that was available. But, um, you know, Northern California has such an incredible diversity of amphibians. So for our lab classes, our teacher would just set us loose in the forest and said, go flip logs, go look for salamanders, grab stuff, bring it, let's look at them. And I think actually getting to see stuff and learn about it, what we learned in class and having it in hand just made sense to me. And, you know, uh, herps are just such an underappreciated group of animals that it just kind of, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to keep working with them. And I'm pr pretty happy I have. Yeah. And I think what's crazy is that people don't realize the fact that not many mammals can you just pick up out of the wild and you have a <laughs> mediocre experience with. But snakes, for the most part, you can play with the wild ones. And that must be fun to be able to get more of a hands-on experience. Yeah, that's true. And that's a really good point because you think of like birders, unless you're bird banding or doing some like direct research, you just like, look, you just see them in binoculars and then that's, that's it. I shouldn't say that's it. It's pretty cool, but <laughs> yeah, it is, it is cool to pick up stuff. You know, I try not to handle it excessively because it does put a lot of stress on animals, but it's like, especially if there's an educational purpose or it's like the first of the species that you've seen, like, yeah, I think it's, it's really fun. Are there any particular lifers um, that really stick out to you as far as the first time you found a certain herb? Hmm. Oh man, that's a good one. Um, honestly, like the first time I saw a sidewinder, I thought it was really cool. And I know that's not like a very rare species and I was definitely going to see them throughout the field season. But the first time I saw it, I mean, my heart just dropped. It was really cool. And it was really unexpected because I was just like trudging through the desert and I almost stepped on it. You know, I was just a foot away from it and it was half buried in the sand. You know, it, just looked like this little sandy cinnamon roll and it could have definitely just shot out and hit me, but it didn't. And my naive self decided to get down on the ground with my camera and like get as close as I could to get a really cool picture with like the landscape in the background. And it didn't even budge. It was just, it was perfect. It just sat there and I was like, wow, how cool. And I think about this um, interaction often because later on in the field season, about three months later, I was um, doing surveys and I saw another side wonder, like after 10 or 20 of them. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to get a picture of this one, too. It's like three, four feet away from me. So I like take off my pack and then I go to grab my camera and I take off my gloves and my gloves fall on the ground. And that instant that they hit the ground, the snake just shot out at them mm. and in like an instant. And it was ha it was like twice the size of what I thought it was because it was so covered by the sand. And I kind of freaked out. And snakes don't, you know, pursue you per se, but it started sidewinding towards me. And I was like backing up, just not even expecting it. And I just thought, wow, that first sidewinder could have just like nabbed me in the face. <laughs> it just didn't. So, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the herp gods will give you a uh, an individual that's really laid back, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, so lifers, I don't know. It, everything feels like a lifer to me. Like every new species I've seen is a lifer. It's not like I have one specific, that's not true. I would love to see a King Cobra. That would be a lifer. For me. That, would be, <laughs> that would be cool. 
yeah. yeah, that is definitely one of those animals where it's like, well, the, the first time I know I saw a rattlesnake was like that. And especially because I didn't live in Texas or the South or even mm -hmm. California. But a king cobra is just like next level. Like that is such a picturesque, just amazing animal. Mm -hmm. Just like one of those zoo quality, like there's only a certain amount of animals in the world that are that intriguing looking mm -hmm. and huge. And and I think in lots of um, like entertainment, like the king cobra is the one that's lots used. Of to it right. Well. It's like it has this mystery for some reason and you're just used to seeing it in so many different forms. Even if you're not into reptiles, it's still like it's part of our society. It's worshipped. It's hated. It's <laughs> all the above. <laughs> So we just got off on a rant on King Cobra. So. <laughs> Never a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so have you gotten a chance to go uh, overseas at all, to go uh, different countries herping? Um, I've traveled a bit. It's never actually been for herping. Um, it's just it's just kind of happened. I mean, I, I went to Peru for two months in between field jobs, but it wasn't like for a herping trip. Like I didn't pay to go on this intense seven-day jungle trek for herps actually i did go to the jungle for 10 days but it wasn't with a herp group they were like <laughs> it was like uh, i know right um i went i went with a friend of mine who's a photojournalist and they were doing a project out there so i just kind of tagged along and we went to the manu national park and yeah we saw we saw a lot of stuff um you know otters and birds um some salamanders, I think just one species of snake, a lot of frogs. Um, but for the most part, it was kind of a more cultural trip. And then we returned again. We went to Iquitos for about five days, met a herpetology student who like took us to his field side and just kind of walked around a couple times at night. So that was like probably my most herp-esque traveling experience. Um, all the other times it's just been like to go visit family or to eat. Or to like these stuff. It's all about eating, like when you travel. <laughs> well, that's good yeah. too. But it, it seems like you do spend a lot of time in the field. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's great. It beats being in the office. Although, like, I, if you're referring to like my social media, it's like obviously I'm going to showcase the more fun parts of the job. I'm not going to be like, selfie, I'm here in the office under fluorescent lights. You know, it's definitely more <laughs> exciting to see a, um, snakes and kayaks and whatever else so yeah. like what percentage of your day is out versus being in the office it totally depends on the project and it totally depends on the season um we're really busy in the summer because reptiles are out and then in the winter we have a lot of office work um although a lot of amphibians are can be active in the winter so we're hoping to tr transition and do some work with those and kind of stay busy year round, but you know, the office stuff is necessary. So, and it's not a bad thing to do. It's, it's good to sometimes take a break from the field. You get burnt out. Yeah. And do you have, um, what's the word an influence of like what field jobs you get? Like, do you have total control over that or is it just all assigned to you? Oh, it's all assigned. Well, for this, yeah, this job that I have now, it's, it's definitely assigned to us, but we can try and find work. Um, and then prior to this job, I would always like just look for different kind of jobs um, that are posted. And I try to target more herp centered jobs, but I would apply to like a shit ton of stuff, just pretty much anything to get experience, um, which has been great. Like some jobs have been good, some not so good, but it's taken me 
to a lot of different states across the country. So they're all like good experiences. For someone looking for a job like herp related, is it, that's a good crack in my voice right there. Right on that herp. (laughs) Anything, (laughs) is it actually harder to come across herp related jobs or is it easier? Is there less competition or more so? And are you on like Indeed searching for this? (laughs) (laughs) Herp deed. So I feel like it, in my experience, it's been more difficult to find herb jobs. I haven't seen as many um, advertised because the majority of them are only summer work. Whereas birds, it's like you can go in the winter, spring, fall, summer. I mean, year round, you can find bird work. Um, Whereas reptiles and amphibians, it's a little more scarce. Um, I think maybe those kind of projects might not be as well funded as well. But as far as like the resource that I use, I found pretty much all my jobs on Texas A&M Wildlife Job Board. It's amazing. It's fun to just peruse, even if you're not looking for a job and just read the different descriptions. They'll post stuff through, or yeah, for USGS, um, US Forest Service. Um, Sometimes it'll just be a PhD student looking for help collecting his dissertation work, which was actually my first job. And um, yeah, they're fun. I've applied to probably over a thousand different jobs there and only have had like five or six. But the Wildlife Society also posts jobs and my one of my old supervisors forwarded me the announcement for this current job that I have now um, through the Wildlife Society. So that's kind of how I got that one. So it's just, I don't know where you look. I'm sure there's other great resources that I'm just not aware of, but that's where I found most of my stuff. So well, I didn't know like, those two existed. Those are yeah. all, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you have to be pretty flexible on yeah. your living situation your and like, be willing to move. <laughs> oh yeah, you definitely do. You can't have like a partner, you can't have a dog or a cat. You have to be able to like, yeah, have money, probably have a vehicle. It's very, it's a very privileged um, career, like field that we have, you know, it's, it's not very easy to suck it up and not get paid in order to get experience and to be able to like move around for it. So I've been really lucky um, to have been able to do what I've been able to do. And is this like some type of building block? Like, what do you plan to do in the future? Are you planning to do more of what you're doing now or? Oh, this is the question that keeps me up at night. (laughs) Um, yeah, this is my first like permanent job in my field. Uh, up until now, I've just been taking like three month gigs, four month gigs, six month gigs, and just like bopping around having fun. So it's been really nice to have like a steady job. I don't know if I want to just work for the rest of my life or if maybe I want to take a break and go back to school. I'd love to go back to grad school, but there's been some challenges there as well that have kind of been slowing me down on that progress. So I haven't written it off completely yet. I'd really like to go. But um, yeah, for now, I'm just kind of enjoying being here and working and learning new things and making some money to sort of pay off my student loans. So yeah. And what would you go back for if you did? Um, I go for my master's and I'd preferably like to do something with reptiles or amphibians. I'd love to do a project with horn lizards or possibly even with giant garter snakes. Um, But you can't always choose what your project is. And oftentimes you choose your project and then it has to be changed and go to something completely different. So I'm pretty open as far as that goes. I feel like we have to bring up our podcast we had a couple weeks ago. Go ahead. I'm not sure. Which one? Um, Zach. Yes. 
uh, and just talking about we're talking about programs because there's a master's one in it too, right? But that's funny because that's actually like the total opposite side. He's now um, there's a professor at a university in West Virginia, and he is basically doing a herpetology master's to where he's running experiments, doing things uh, in the captive environment. And trying to further like husbandry within oh, the true. captive so environment. It's not more about it's not about outside. But he is right. also like one of the biggest crayfish biologists in the country. Oh. So fun. Yeah, he has a crayfish cool. named after him. What? What what is yeah. it? Um, um, what's his last name? Zach Lothman? It, yeah, yeah. So it's like Lothmani or something, I'm sure. Is oh, the that's crayfish. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Huh. Uh, I don't know. That just made me think of that. I'm like, there's yeah, it seems like there's more programs, like that, yeah. hopefully. I, I hope more programs pop up for her, things related to herpetology, um, especially at the postgraduate level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think they're out there. It's definitely just finding an advisor and a lab and a project that you like and being able to swing it. So, yeah, we'll we'll see. Are you ready to move again <laughs> if you got to go somewhere? Uh, not really. I mean. I, I would, I'd move again, definitely. Are you from California? Yeah, I am. And oddly enough, this is my first job in California. All my other jobs have been in other states. So yeah, it's nice because I'm only like eight hours away from home. Whereas before I'd be like. Across Florida. the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd like to not have to move if possible, but yeah, I'm, I'm flexible. And it also seems like you have a lot of projects in the works. So can you talk a little bit about. Horn lizards, what's going on with that? Oh, yeah. So the horn lizard project, um, it's not related to my work here in, in Sacramento at all. It's something that my old supervisor and I have been kind of toying around with. And so it's the it's a photo ID project. So we're interested in testing the efficacy of photo identification as a way to mark and recapture horn lizards, um, specifically flat-tailed horn lizards, because he's already done some work using this method on other species and it's shown to be um, useful. And so if you guys don't know, like mark recapture is um, basically what it sounds like. You mark an animal, you release it, you capture it later, and you identify that individual um, based on the unique marking that you gave it. So photo identification is a method used to study animals with unique markings, such as cheetahs um, or leopard frogs. And so basically the real driving point behind this method is to um, utilize a minimally invasive technique to mark an individual by taking a series of standardized photos in order to identify it later. So kind of like um, a thumbprint like a fingerprint with humans. So we would be using photos of horned lizards, dorsum, so their back, their venter, their belly, and scale geometry to identify individuals from one another. So horned lizards have um, distinctive patterns and colors that help aid them in camouflage. And each of those patterns are unique to the individual. Um, so we would be using two types of software. They're, um, they use semi it's like a semi automatic automated semi automated mat it's like a i don't remember okay so i don't know what the two softwares are but the difference between them is one would be looking at patterns and the other one would be looking at 
scale geometry or the orientation of scale specifically at the top of their head. So they have this um, pineal gland or parietal eye, and we would use that as the center point for marking it. And basically you run these photos through the two softwares and they're supposed to help you re-identify that individual um, multiple times. So you need recaptures in order for it to work. You can't just grab Bob over here, take a picture of him, let him go and say, hey, that worked. You got to catch Bob again like mm -hmm. weeks later right. and be like, hey, there he is. Um, Do you name him Bob? <laughs> it just came up. <laughs> It'd be more like PH10034 or something like that. <laughs> gotcha. No fun names. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but so other mark recapture techniques take a lot, take many forms, such as putting a band on a bird's leg or implanting elastomer in a frog or inserting a, a pit tag into the cavity of an animal. Or but, even um, clipping a scale, right? People do that as well. Yeah, or scale clipping or um, scoot um, marking. But some mark recapture techniques are more invasive and less humane, such as toe clipping. And that's something that's really commonly used with lizards, especially horned lizards. And um, sometimes, depending on how many lizards you catch, you're actually cutting off up to like three or four digits. And something that we've been thinking of, especially with flat-tailed horned lizards, is how does this affect them? How does this affect their, um, their overall health and survivorship? Because you got to think about it. These are fossorial or ground-dwelling lizards. They need to scurry. They need to dig burrows. They spend a lot of their time underground. What happens when they miss out on a couple of these digits? So we're really hoping to um, test this method out and hopefully encourage researchers to adopt less invasive methods because we really don't know how much harm um, we put on these animals or how much this um, will affect their behavior. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to be working on that. And I'll actually be going out, um, I think I'll be going out next month to hopefully get some photos of, of horned lizards. Why do you think the toe clipping is so heavily used, even though it's pretty invasive? And it seems like from a person who doesn't know what's going on, I'm like, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, that in my head, terrible. yeah, in my head, I'm like, that's terrible. I feel like there's a million other ways, but yeah, why? And it doesn't even seem easy. Like, and at first, I was like, maybe it's just the easiest way, but it seems I don't know. It is pretty easy. It's just kind of like snipping, um, but often pit tags are used, and that's a great way to do mark recapture. But when you have hatchlings or neonates that are literally like the size of your thumb, a pit tag is just going to go through half their body. That wouldn't work. So I think in cases like that, um, that is where toe clipping might be used. Now, that's not to say that toe clipping isn't used in larger species because it might still be used. It's just kind of this like archaic method that um, a lot of researchers just continue to use because it's tried and true and it's been tested to work and this photo id project isn't as common it's not as popular there haven't been enough studies done to really prove the efficacy of it so it's just it's kind of like this the new kid on the block you know you just you're not sure really if it's gonna hang in there but i think it i think it will and and another thing why i think toe clipping is used more commonly is because it's quick and it's easy and it's reliable and it doesn't require as much time. Whereas this photo ID project, you catch your lizard, you take your series of photos, and then you have to upload the photos to a database. You have to organize the photos, then you have to run them through the software. 
Um, all of that takes a lot of time and effort and more materials versus just getting a pair of like scissors and cutting off toes, you know, but this can also, there's a lot of error that comes with that. I mean, especially with hatchling lizards, their toes are just tiny. You, we've had times where we've actually clipped off the wrong toe or we've clipped off two toes, mm -hmm. or maybe they'll lose a toe naturally in the wild and that can throw off the whole thing. So there's pros and cons to each thing, but we're really trying to sort of drive the, the less or the more humane uh, method of mark recapture. So I'm really excited about it and I really hope we can get something out of it. In my head, I'm like, it's like face ID for <laughs> animals. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, that's a big thing right now. All the technology that our phones have to like recognize like the difference between two people who look very similar. And, and like now think how, about how many scales I know. <laughs> a, a has. Has. I, ugh, that must very be so unique, many yeah. different markers that mm -hmm. that software is having to like pull on and try to find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the technology is out there, so it's not that it couldn't work. And with the one software that just looks at markings, that's less complex than the scale geometry. I believe that one, and I don't know enough about it, so don't quote me on it. But um, from what I've heard is that when you actually have mm -hmm. to manually draw the points from each edge of the scale, and then submit that to the computer, and then that way it can identify it later. So it's not, it just it can't just take a photo and be like, oh, I know who that is right away. You really okay. have to work with the computer. So it's definitely that's complicated. A little intensive. Yeah. I know, right? You take an Instagram I, picture of that. That's the fun yeah, part. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully in the next couple of years that would be cool. But I, I think it's worth it. You know, I think if you are passionate about what you're doing and you value the animals that you study and just the natural world overall i think that extra going that extra mile is really worth it so i mean i'll let you guys know how that goes because right now it's just the easy part just taking pictures you know <laughs> yeah but i mean talking about taking pictures obviously your instagram is filled with her pictures so it's what how did that kind of come to be oh, like taking wait, pictures of i have a question and, about this yeah. first hold on um, how long is the expected like time frame for this, you know, project? Undecided. Um, it kind of was, so it was like in its infantile stages when I was working in Arizona for a completely different job and we were trying to just collect data for that. And then, um, now that I'm living in California, it's, it's not easy to have that same access to the data. So my supervisor suggested that I, apply for this grant through the Horned Lizard Conservation Society. Uh, I got it, me and like five other people. Um, thanks. <laughs> um, so I just got the grant. And so this upcoming summer, or I'm sorry, this upcoming month will be the first uh, data collecting event for that. So I think in order to have a really good story is to have a lot of good data. So the more data we can collect over multiple years, the better it'll be. So it doesn't have an end point. Um, I just have to give like a progress report in two years. Um, since it's not like a master's project, or it's literally just a volunteer thing that we're just kind of doing on the side. It doesn't have an end date. So I don't know, probably under five, hopefully more <laughs> than two. We'll see how it goes. How was your, grant I guess, writing. grant writing experience? <laughs> It was stressful. It's, it was a very small grant. Um, you know, it wasn't like an NSF grant or anything, but it was, 
yeah, it was stressful. Like I had to suddenly just be on the clock and write up um, a proposal, like a budget and basically what we we're going to do. And um, I mean, I, I've written more intense papers, I guess, but it was exciting to get it. It was, it was really rewarding. And I mean, obviously I had help from, um, you know, my supervisor who's also involved in the project and who's really spearheading it. So it was kind of nice to have that there. Yeah, yeah. So you weren't just going in blind there. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay, now we can talk about Instagram <laughs> and how it came to be. Yeah, so how'd you uh, come about and start your Instagram? Well, I got a smartphone. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I got a smartphone and I just, you know, downloaded all the fun apps and... um. I don't know. I mean, I think if you dig back, like some of my first pictures are just like weird, blurry things. And then uh, I guess I had my first field job, which was in in the Great Plains. Well, it was based out of Colorado, but it was in the Great Plains. So, I mean, it was such a cool job. We were constantly camping and hiking and um, looking for terrestrial reptiles. And I was just like, these are cool pictures. Like we were, that was part of the job was to take photos. We had to take standardized and voucher photos of anything we saw, any terrestrial reptile we saw. So I had all of these photos and I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to share them. Not just stuff of, you know, a cool snake or a lizard, but of like, oh, there's this huge bison herd and there's this coyote like skulking behind and here's the sunset. And it was just like really um, pretty. It just kind of became like a photo journal that I shared with other people. And then I took more field herping jobs and I got more into photography and I mean, I don't want to say like I'm really into photography. I've just got like a little digital camera, but it's pretty good for a digital camera and it's got a great zoom. And yeah, I just kind of dumped a lot of photos on there. And I think it kind of snowballed into this like um, networking experience. You know, I was like about to move to Florida for a job and I didn't know anyone on the East Coast, like no one. And so I just kind of stalked some people on on Instagram that had like herp stuff. And I was like, oh, this person's cool. I'm going to connect with them. This person's cool. I'm going to connect with them and ask them how it is. And it just kind of like went from there. And everywhere I went, it just sort of like spread into this this little network. And there's a pretty cool herp community on there. So yeah, it just kind of like grew with other people. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how many people you find with instagrams with awesome snake pictures on it whether it's like biologists hobbyists and especially in florida <laughs> there's, oh, there's yeah. so many people to connect with in florida yeah yeah i know that now and i was only there for like four months it was such a short amount of time but yeah there's amazing stuff out there and some really cool people and good scientists yeah, yeah i guess i guess that's one of those things where i don't know what's wrong with my voice I'm not saying anything. You don't have <laughs> to say it every time. <laughs> well, it seems like if you want to be in herbs, you want to have a job in herbs, you're going to have to eventually you got to live in Florida for a little at bit. At least some right? part. <laughs> work at least a little bit in Florida. And uh, what were some of your experiences being there? Oh, my God. Um, very hot. <laughs> very sweaty. Very mosquito-y. Not my climate at all, but I'm stoked that I went because I was toying around with going to grad school there and I just don't know if I could handle it. Granted, I went there at like the worst time of the year. I was there from like May until September. So it was like, you know, like a hot, wet rag just slapped in your face pretty much all the time. Every day. <laughs> yeah, every day. Uh, 
no, my experiences there were great. I mean, especially now looking back on it, um, to be honest, a lot of the job duties I had were kind of harsh. Like I was hired as a intern working with um, invasive reptiles. We, our main duties were to work with Argentine black and white tegus, which are awesome lizards, but they're invasive. You know, they're from Argentina and we had to capture them. We had to trap them and put radio transmitters on them and track them to try and get their home ranges. And we were trying to look for nests in the hopes of incubating the eggs and then putting transmitters on the babies, releasing them and tracking the babies to see where they were going. During my season, we didn't actually catch any babies. So we borrowed some from University of Florida and threw some transmitters on them and tracked them. So that was like the cool, like sciencey part of the job. I'd never done radio telemetry before. I didn't know how to work the antenna. There was a lot of troubleshooting. There was a lot of crawling around on my hands and knees and like this mosquito suit looking for lost transmitters because Tegus like to go under root logs and rip off the transmitters they're expensive yeah yeah you know we had to wear like the the pants and the boots and long sleeve shirts and these awesome bug jackets you know the ones with like the hood that you zip up and stuff so you're just like breathing in your own like exhale and (laughs) like sweats dripping into your eyeballs as you're like looking for the stupid transmitter so there's a lot of big right like they're pretty small yeah it was like i mean it fits in your hand you know Uh, (laughs) yeah but you always felt really like good when you found one so it was nice um good game yeah Yeah, except yeah did anyone get eaten and pass through did it oh no i don't think so not not that i'm aware of that's interesting we did have one drop in a canal where there was alligators and we're just like we're not getting that (laughs) that one has to be lost that one's just yeah i mean someone should have fashioned like a fishing pole with a magnet at the end and like done something but (laughs) no we saw alligators swimming by and we would just like still track it because it was part of the data and we're like no we're just we're just gonna leave that there it's still right where we left it last time (laughs) yep yep hasn't (laughs) gone away (laughs) um but yeah so a lot of the other parts of the job was euthanasia of invasive species. So we actually did euthanize a lot of tegus. We were studying the females for this project. So all the males we got, we had to euthanize. And we also had to euthanize basically any invasive thing that we found, like including cane toads, um, curly-tailed lizards, which is just heartbreaking. I mean, that was like the worst, probably my worst day was having to euthanize a curly-tailed lizard, but also Burmese pythons. So any Mm. python we caught, or that was dropped in from volunteers, we had to euthanize. And then we had to necropsy them to learn more about them. So I think one of, I think it was like my first week, I I had to like go out there and they like just dumped this, I don't know, five, six foot python. Maybe I'm like exaggerating. It was only like three or four feet, but it seemed really big at the time. They just dumped this snake out and I had to pin it and secure it and shoot it in the head with a captive oh. bullet. Yeah, and sorry, this is PG-13, right? This is rated R. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's that's how you euthanize them. You have to kind of line it up right on top of their head and just, so I'm doing this. I'm like standing over it, doing this in the hot sun with like sweat dripping down my back, mosquitoes like eating my face and I'm having to like shoot this 
animal in the head and like eyeballs pop out and like bloods everywhere and the end of its tail's like wrapping around my legs like death death as it's dying yeah it's yeah it was it was harsh and thing is i knew what i was getting into like it was in the description yeah you will have to euthanize a necropsy but you're like oh that's science and then you get there (laughs) and you're like oh it's invasive but it's harsh but it's invasive this is good right but it's harsh and so then you would throw them on ice, you would have to scramble their brains to make sure they were really out. And then after they were completely not moving, you cut them all up, peel them open, um, look at their gut contents to see, you know, what they were eating, look for um, parasites in the lungs that were indicative of like avian influenza, and um, stuff like that. So that was that was a harsh part of it. And the same with the tegus, we would have to euthanize them the same way and cut them open. But I think the, the probably the craziest thing I had to do, and I only had to do this once, like in my team, all my co a lot of my coworkers had to do a lot more of this stuff than I did. Like I was only there three months. Some of my coworkers were there for a year. So they have way more experience in this than I do. But for me, one of the most intense things I ever had to do was we had to get blood samples from a python and the nature of these blood samples had to be extracted from its heart while it was still beating. So we had to euthanize it. We, we shot it, but you know, their body still moves after a while. So we had to put it on the table, hold it down and we had to find, Oh, I'm so sorry, Melissa. <laughs> I'm really trying not to cry right now. But this is I'm also so no, it's like it's like hand, an episode of Hand Handmaid's Tale. Like I'm really sad, but I can't stop listening. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'll wrap it up as best I can. So yeah, you you have to find the the heartbeat and slip a needle under the scale and draw blood from its still beating heart. And even though it's it's been shot, so it's it's technically dead slipping the needle into its heart, the whole body just kind of contracts and rise. So you have these people holding it down and you have to get it just right. You don't want to inject air into it. You want to get just enough in the vial. So that was really hard. That was just kind of mind blowing to me. It's like, oh, I just pulled, I just extracted blood from the beating heart of a Burmese python. Like, holy shit. I mean, like, that's awesome. Like, as, (laughs) as crazy as the process was to get there, that is like, Still not. It's amazing. And it like, makes me even more interested on why it has to be that way. Yeah. And I'm unfortunately not the person to ask because I was just a lowly intern. I didn't really crunch any data or, um, but I could get back to you on that. That's how they it, haze all the interns. They <laughs> make them take blood out of the heart. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I know it was, it was, it was for, um, we're doing blood blots and it was for a sample. I, yeah, I should try and find out exactly why it had to be. That's crazy. Though. I guess because maybe when the when it's the whole body shuts down, maybe the blood is just not of good quality anymore. It starts to die, like the cells start dying. Um, that's likely what it is. But yeah, if someone else knows, correct me on that. So yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, so a lot of euthanasia, euthanasia. So it was like a cool job for the experience. I can say like, yeah, I spent a summer in the Everglades props to everyone else who lives out there and works there all the time and goes to grad school studying all this stuff. Really awesome. Amazing. I don't know if I could hang. I prefer the dry heat a lot better. So and they're also yeah. like fighting such a large uphill battle with yeah. invasives in Florida. Yeah. That's kind of the 
question that a lot of people ask me. They're like, oh, so how's it going? Or, you know, what good does it really do? And like I said, I'm not really the person to ask. I'm not an expert. I was only there for a few months in the summer, but Burmese pythons are there. Like they're there to stay. Like the ones that we, the only, when you think about it, the only ones we ever see are those that you actively go out and catch that are brought to you or that are crossing the road. There are so many miles and miles of swamps that just have these pythons that aren't coming out, that aren't coming out to the road and getting hit by cars that aren't coming out and, you know, people are grabbing them. So just imagine what is out there that we're not even seeing. So, but while I was still there, um, as far as I know, tegus hadn't entered the park yet. So we were living in Everglades park and we were trapping outside of it and just on the, um, on the entrance of it. And up until then, they hadn't gotten into the park. So they're, I think that's more of a fighting cause. They're trying to curtail their, their invasion into the park. So, so um, even though you were there for just a couple of months, do you feel that um, being there changed your view on invasive species as a whole? Did it not re really affect your view of other ones other than the Burmese and stuff like that? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think initially I took the job because I wanted to work <clears throat> with invasive species and study them and go to grad school doing something related to that. Um, now I don't as much cause I know that'll involve a lot of killing and yeah, I don't, huh, that's a good question. If that really changes my perspective, it's in the invasive species thing is hard because you're there and you know that by removing individuals from the population, you're doing good. You're, tr you're kind of trying to balance the ecological scale there. But at the same time, it's really difficult to kill something that is another living being that has no idea that it's invasive, that it's not supposed to be there. I mean, it's, it's ultimately our fault that they are there. We brought them there either intentionally or, or unintentionally. So it's kind of like a, a difficult moral question and I don't really know how to come to grips with it. I mean, I'm not against euthanasia of invasive species. Like I, I support it, obviously it, it's for the better good, but I just don't know if it's something that I want to totally get myself immersed in and dedicate my life to. So it's, it's, it's very important to just try and take preventative measures. I think um, just as much as it is to, sort of curtail um, the advancement of these invasive species. So we really need to be careful about releasing our invasive pets or just transferring animals or, you know, all of, all of those things. So that's even, kind of as, even as professionals who have facilities, obviously there's hurricanes in Florida, there's weather events. So yeah. backup facilities, if you keep your animals outside, iguanas, stuff like that, you mm -hmm. got to make sure that you have plans for these types of things. And you know, this doesn't happen anymore because it's a really giant scar on the private keepers in the United States. So um, because we as private keepers, like we care, we don't want invasive species. We don't want any of this to happen. And it's sad that I feel like it is mostly our fault. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we can't erase. We can't get rid yeah. of them. Um, yeah. It will be forever for the berms, at least. They're snakes. They hide. <laughs> I mean, that's their job. Yeah, and they eat everything. They're they're great at it. And Florida is like 
great year round, like perfect weather. That's where all the old people go. Like it's where people go to retire. It's like, how could you not like flourish there? And then the tegus eat eggs of everything. Eat eggs, small mammals, lizards. Yeah, whatever they can. We would um, set out traps um, baited with quail eggs and uh, cat food. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's no. not you like it. Yeah, I mean, so do other things. So we would get like raccoons and stuff in there also. So, um, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Um, okay, so I have a kind of hotbed non-reptile related question. Mm. Um, does your view on like catching or releasing animals apply to feral cats? Oh, nice. The feral cat question. I like it. Um, what, what specifically do you just want to hear my stance on it or are you asking what, okay. (laughs) Oh, this is good. Yeah. Uh, I hope like, yeah, some of my family is listening to this because I have family members who are near and dear to me who are cat owners who let their cats outside. And I am very against it because of all of the, damage that cats do. I mean, we know this cats love to hunt and kill and play with stuff, which includes birds, small mammals and lizards. And honestly, I think cat, the the small percentage of rodents that cats target doesn't, um, doesn't weigh out the, the damage that they can do to a lot of native species. I mean, especially birds, I don't have any numbers on hand, but I mean, the estimates are, are outrageous. So obviously I'm against people who let their cats outdoors. I think there's a lot of great alternatives to that. Primarily just keep your cats indoors. Um, you can build catios, which are these like, I didn't come up with that term. I wish I did, but there are these exposures and they're, they're pretty good size. They are small, however you want to make them where you can throw your cat outside. It's just like a backyard with the top because they jump. So just throw your cat out there and God forbid something crawls in there. You can't prevent everything from crawling in there. And you know, it's just like the Coliseum, the cats are going to get them, but at least you're, you're keeping them kind of restrained. So I think those are a great option. Um, A lot of people mentioned cats, Wearing collars with bells will help alert birds to their noise, but cats are very stealthy. They can still get them. So I don't think that's really useful. I do know about um, cat bibs. Have you guys ever heard of cat bibs? Oh my gosh, you got to Google it. It's hilarious. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's a collar with the bib attached to it. So there's this like obnoxious like um, oven mitt sized like bib on the front of their chest and so the cat at sequoia park zoo up in humboldt in eureka california actually wears one so this cat just struts around the zoo grounds and it wears this bib and it's totally accustomed to it it doesn't mind it struts around it likes it and what this thing does supposedly is when a cat goes to pounce on the prey the bib flies up in its face stopping it from its attack. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how effective they are. I'm not saying that that's the best option, but I think it's clever at least that we're trying to find some alternative. Are you googling it right now, Melissa? <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so not a very big. stealthy type of thing. No. It's just like hitting you in your face when you jump up. Yeah, why not though, right? I mean, it's it's to prevent them from killing stuff. So I think it's a great step. But I don't know how useful they are. I don't know how effective they are. Honestly, keeping your cats indoors is so much better. 
they they wreak havoc. I don't know how many times I can say it. I'm very against it. Um, so Melissa, what you're mentioning earlier about the trap release mm-hmm. question, I think as, as um, regarding like feral cats, I think it's perfectly acceptable to trap feral cats and euthanize them. I know a lot of people think that's cruel and that you should instead get them spayed or neutered and try and adopt them out and or even they they do release so they trap neuter release so there's tnr programs like especially here there's even one in philly who um don't get too worked up babe but uh, take a breath take a breath (laughs) but you know they trap them they i know i know your view on it i'm trying to see the thing is that the, 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 the most recent study that came out said at least 3 billion birds a year. 3 billion. Like, that's outrageous. And mm-hmm. so when you're, when you're spaying and neutering these cats, they're just going out they there and they're still, still eating. They're still it doesn't do, matter right. that their next generation isn't going. I they're mean, still right, yeah. You're never going to catch Having them. balls or not having balls doesn't mean you don't want to kill stuff. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, a little murderer on the loose there. So. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think those are really effective. I mean, there's so many animals that are in pounds too it's like do we really have to bring more out from i don't want to say wild because they're they're cats they're domestic but they're feral but it's like i just think that people need to take more preventative action to spaying and neutering their pets in the first place and not let them run out and i mean especially cats in this case and get knocked up and then have a bunch of kittens and like perpetuate the issue obviously if you're a responsible pet owner and you don't let that happen, it's perfectly fine. You don't have to sterilize all your animals. But I think it's really important to take those steps because, I mean, animals are just rampant, you know, and cats just cause so much damage. So anyways, that's my stance on it. I don't know what your guys' stance is on it. Uh, exactly. But, yeah. Just, said, just thinking about catch and release and, you know, but then I'm also like, oh, the person who has to use them is a cat. Well, you know, in Australia, they like take pictures with it like it's a lion or something. Yeah. Who's that? There's this one famous man who's like wearing all these cat pellets as like fur, as like a, a suit and like a hat. Yeah. It's, he's very proud of it. Props to him, you know? I'd rather them start shooting and eating cats than like dugongs and all the stuff that they yeah that's a good point yeah let's find some recipes for cat meat and get people encouraged to go down this path (laughs) so there's basically like a thing that looks like a manatee and it's in australia and actually the the aboriginals for some reason the laws don't apply to them the conservation laws so this is an endangered animal because no one's messing because no one's messing with the aboriginals no well yeah no because they have to eat them to live yeah. but it's also the easiest animal to kill and that's why it's endangered so it's kind of a tricky situation where you want them they're to trying to survive but then again this animal's in peril so it's kind of a tough situation mm-hmm. and that's something that we see like throughout you know these issues australia um, people who are struggling place. you know just put food on the table it's hard to tell them not yeah. to get something for money or eat something to eat it yeah absolutely but how did we get off on this? Huh? Sorry. And I, oh, killing, <laughs> shooting stuff. Any other random things I want to say today. Um, last <laughs> random thing. And I promise I'm staying on topic. Um, to, I'm sorry. If you are friends with Ryan Sullivan on Facebook, did you see what someone tried to trade him for a retic today? Oh, a kangaroo. A kangaroo. 
someone literally messaged him and was like, I think for like two feet, she wanted like two female retics and she wanted to trade him a kangaroo. <laughs> Is that legal? I don't That's I don't feel like <laughs> Oh my be. god. It's also like, wait, has this worked for you in the past that you like, like, this is what people do? To, like, I don't know. That's weird ground to get in. I don't. Also, it's in Texas. Yeah. Once you start talking <laughs> tigers, panthers, even a kangaroo. It gets weird. Wow. Have um, you guys ever had people just offer to trade you stuff instead of paying you? Just like, here's yeah, an animal. Or here's No. No, it, it will be I'm, like a game console from like 10 years ago. Or like speakers out of their car or like a computer. <laughs> wow. Um, nowhere near kangaroo level. <laughs> or else we'd have a kangaroo. She's like, Philly kangaroo in the backyard. Oh my gosh. Her sure neighbors would fun. kill us. Um, sorry. Okay. Back to topic. <laughs> okay. Um, so, wow. So what was your job right after doing all that um, euthanization? Like, I feel like I need a break. Oh, um, yeah. Second. What did you do right after that? Uh, what did I do after that? Florida. I think that's when I went to Arizona to do the, the horn lizard job. So that was equally as hot. <clears throat> but much much drier oh yeah it was like like one or two percent humidity so very dry um yeah yeah that was a great job that was also a pretty intense field season um i was only there for the summer of course and that's where we were working with flat-tailed horn lizards um in yuma and so what we were doing was tracking also tracking um females to try and find them find their nest sites and look at their overall um, distribution and see not only where they were digging burrows, but where they were laying nests. So we would catch them and put radio transmitters on them um, and then just track them three times a day. So in the morning before the sun came up, in the middle of the day when it's the hottest, and then at night. And we usually always found them um, active in the morning and at night and rarely in the middle of the day, they were usually under a burrow so we could track them right to the burrow. Sometimes you'd even see a little antenna sticking out of the burrow. Um, so that was a really cool job. And we actually found a lot of, um, hatchling horn lizards. Um, what was really cool about that job is that we actually learned how to track them. So not just radio tracking them, but actually visually tracking their prints in the sand. So this species is extremely cryptic. They're a species of special concern. So they're not very high in numbers. If you Google their range, it's just this tiny little section of Southern California, um, Arizona and Mexico. And that's it. That's the only place that they live. So we had to identify, learn how to identify their tracks in the sand and differentiate those tracks from like zebra tails or um, fringe toed lizards or um, sometimes even like beetles and scorpions. Like when I first started, I couldn't even tell the difference between any of these. They were all just like these tiny little markings in the sand. And once the wind blew, they were gone. gone. And you're just like, well, fuck, like, where is it now? Or, you know, the sun gets up too high and it doesn't cast a shadow on the tracks just perfectly and then you don't even see them anymore and you're just like wearing sunglasses and it's like hot so it's it's very straining on the eyes but it's a really cool skill 
and one that you know, I was proficient at, but I was never an expert at, you know, a lot of my coworkers were also really good at it. There's plenty of people out there, you know, who work for like Arizona Game and Fish and such who are really good at tracking and they find way more lizards than I ever did. But it was a really cool job. And another part of the study was we were looking at loggerhead shrikes, which are a type of bird like in the passerine families, third songbirds do you guys know about shrikes they're really like, cool wh- what's a bird yeah dude loggerhead shrikes are really cool so um you should check them out you should google them some of the things that they do they're i forget what their latin name is but it literally translates to butcher bird so these birds will go out and snag their prey and impale them on sharp objects <laughs> So they'll find oh. thorns or spikes or barbed wire and just like wrench the Slide little on. animal on. Yeah, like lizards, birds, insects, snakes, everything. I mean, they're just these badass little birds and they're so pretty and cute and you wouldn't really think so. So that was another part that of the study we were doing is we were looking at loggerhead shrike predation on these horn lizards and also how um, man-made structures played a role in it. So we would look at um, ironwood trees and we would find a bunch of horn lizards, uh, dead horn lizards there, but we'd also look at barbed wire fences, which is an anthropogenic structure and kind of see like what the relationship was there. So shrikes will, um, they will, they, they essentially have these, what is the word? Larder? It's, it's basically where there's a bunch of dead, their prey, like dead animals at the base of a tree or a bush. And we would go over there and count how many horn lizard skulls there were to get an estimate of like how many they have been killing. So like one of the first times we went out there, it was this crazy experience because we all just kind of walked up to this tree thinking, oh, like this is where we've seen some shrikes fly into. We saw them with binoculars some feet back and we get up to it. And it was like that scene from the Lion King when like Simba and Nala come up to the elephant graveyard is just like got all quiet and there was just like the whole ground was littered in these horn lizard skulls and up in the tree branches you see like not only the skulls you know like a a spike coming through its mouth and poking out its eye but sometimes like half of their body was still there it was just shriveled up and they're just ghastly like hanging there and it was just it was so weird to come up on this tree it was was like a really dark christmas tree just like littered with all of these little (laughs) skulls and dead bodies and we would collect them and count them and collect their pellets and uh yeah it was a crazy crazy cool project these are the most intense birds i think ever to exist right any like rhyme or reason why they do that is there a particular purpose for doing that i'm sure there is and i'm not the person to ask i i should look into that because that would be really interesting i just i don't know i think that's just something that they some behavior they they evolved with and it you know it could have something to do with the fact that they're relatively small birds and maybe they just don't have the right mechanisms to sort of tear apart their prey or to kill their prey. I mean, I think they are able to catch prey much larger than themselves. And in order to kind of subdue them, they just quickly skewer it onto something and just chill while it dies. And then they go and pick at it. So I think it's kind of like a a behavioral thing that they evolved to do to kind of make it easier on them to, to get their prey. 
So I was I was hoping it was like a medieval castle where they put heads on sticks in the front so that people don't mess with them. Like a Game of Thrones. <laughs> okay, so I had to look these words up. They're the most innocent looking, right? small, like nothing. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're pastorines. They're, they're songbirds. When you think of songbirds, you think of the, like the snow white, little chirping, singing around, dancing. Yeah. These are like serious birds. I mean, they're just, yeah, they're cool. And they've got this shrieking sound. They're, they're very intelligent. They're really smart. They know when you're following them. They know when you're looking at them, just like corvids, you know, like crows and ravens. They're, they're pretty awesome. So that was a cool project. Yeah. So you definitely don't have a weak, weak stomach. Like, ah. Uh, yeah, not after Florida. <laughs> no. Everything's down. I feel like, yeah, I mean, there's no way you can get much more intense, right? Well, if you think like, about it, like, herpetologists many times often have to take specimens back with them when they go to, yeah, you know, different places. They, they don't think kill you snakes kill the constantly. specimen, do they? Yes. I thought they just find the dead ones. That's why it's called a specimen. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One Burmese python. Sorry, I'm going back to Florida. Florida. One Burmese python we got was hit on the road. It was like, I don't know. I have to check with my coworker, Katie, on this because she helped me with it. It was like, I swear, it was like seven or eight feet long and it had been hit on the road. So we collected it and just threw it on the freezer. And then like weeks later, we're like, okay, we have to necropsy this thing. We have to necropsy it. It's been sitting around. So we take this like couple week old dead python and dethaw it or yeah, thaw it um, in the lab, which is an enclosed space. You can't open the windows because it's Florida and it's hot. And we start cutting this thing open and you just get like hit with this hot smell of just like rotting organs and like all of the intestines are kind of like bloated up with the gas and there's like still stuff in their digesta, like, you know, animals and stuff that they've eaten. And you're just having to sit there, like cut through it. And yeah, I... I think it was really difficult for me. I think Katie did a lot of that. She was like the necropsy queen. So, uh, what yeah. title you want? <laughs> some, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I mean, if you find something cool, something groundbreaking, something. Better I be mean, good did, at it. <laughs> did you guys find anything that you would deem unusual in tegus or burns? I don't know. Um, I don't think I did enough necropsies to say so. A lot of the stuff we got was just kind of mush that, you know, we separated into bags and that would, were going to be analyzed later. A lot of things were obvious. It was like bird feathers and stuff. Um, one interesting thing was like finding these <clears throat> pentastone parasites in the lung of the pythons. And you would actually kind of see them and pull them out with tweezers and put them in alcohol to look at later. And I think that was indicative of them eating birds that had avian influenza. But I, yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I don't have access to any of the the data that came from all of that. I'm sure I could look into it and find out more, but yeah, no, I don't think we found anything crazy. Is there anything like any danger posed by the fact that there's animals, you know, these animals are carrying the avian flu? Not to humans. No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I do know that people will eat pythons, but I don't, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I don't, I'm not sure. Cook your pythons well done, people. Yeah. <laughs> Get all that bad so, stuff out. So Arizona. Um, how what I mean, was it frustrating the fact that this was 
an elusive species to where these birds were just making like mass graveyards of them when you couldn't get your hands on like live ones sometimes? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, yeah, it was really sad to see so many of them dead under the tree, but I mean, that's, it's, that's the part of life, you know, that's, that's more of a, a natural thing and we are just doing our best to understand what our role is in it and hopefully um, address those issues and, and work towards the overall conservation of the species. But yeah, yeah, it did suck. It was kind of like, Oh damn. But it was also kind of cool to see the skulls and um, you know, the birds are really cool too. Like everything's got to eat. And you said you would collect those skulls. Mm-hmm. So what were you doing with the skulls? Um, we were just collecting them to get a count. Um, we would take a GPS coordinate of that tree and just kind of like map out sort of which shrikes were hanging out and what tree and uh, how many horned lizards were there. And uh, yeah, it was just a collection thing. I'm not sure what's being done with them now, but that was all. Little children or something. Ooh. I feel like so I know. <laughs> Little, I mean, their skulls aren't that put it big. On a I don't know. Sold your, to some uh, weird little zoo gift shop. I feel. What do you call the year? One of those. It's not a skin trader, but something worse is a worse word for it. What? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. But basically, using knickknacks like it's a like Indonesian market and putting them on. Oh, your little stuff yeah, like the little head. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is probably a really stupid question that I should know. But um, on the list, like, what is the the scale slash order of like, uh, not endangered species, but like that list? So, like, obviously, endangered species are worse. But you brought up like special concern. I think you said like special status earlier. Like, oh like, yeah, yeah. What are, what are the levels? All I know is endangered. Like, but obviously, there's something before that. Right. Yeah. So when earlier I said special status, that was kind of like an umbrella term for species that have a certain status um, assigned to them. So, you know, you have uh, endangered, below that is threatened. Um, and species of special concern, such as um, the flat-tailed horn lizards, aren't protected um, by the federal government. So, they're just a species of special concern. So they don't have any specific laws protecting them. I mean, of course you're supposed to have your fishing license if you're going to be handling herbs and stuff based on what state that you're in. (laughs) Joe's all looking at her. Yeah, no one really does, but you should. And so some species such as the giant garter snake is both state and federally protected. So it's a threatened species in the state of California. It's a threatened species, um, for the federal government. So it is protected and you're not supposed to handle it, capture it or harass it or anything like that. Whereas flat-tailed horn lizards don't have that same level of protection. And I don't really know how these different tiers get um, placed on animals and what the deciding factors are for that. Because, you know, you, you see something like the flat-tailed horn lizard, they have such a tiny range and you see other animals have a larger range, but the animals with their larger range have a more protective status. I mean, that's all just politics that, you know, is beyond me. Um, so yeah, when I said special concern, uh, special status, it was just kind of like, a, oh, these are different a- animals that are protected. Like Western pond turtles are a species of special concern, but uh, tiger salamanders aren't. So hmm. interesting. yeah. And how does that affect you as a biologist? I mean, when you're working with animals that say are endangered, um, what's like, do you have permits, stuff like that? 
Yeah. So I don't have any permits myself, but I work under my boss who has permits. So uh, once I got enough training, I was uh, certified to be able to handle some of these species under his supervision or under his training with his consent. Sweet. So, yeah. uh, I mean, what is it like to be able to get the opportunity just to work with animals that people don't get that i mean your your job is doing what everyone would love to do which is finding herbs maybe not all the time but uh, <laughs> finding herbs and stuff like that um i mean what is it like to just have the opportunity to see like a horned lizard like something like that for me it's really special just because it's special to me but it's not i, I don't i don't think my job is as should be as coveted as it is because obviously like you see all the really cool parts of it, the, the good aspects of it, but that's not necessarily, you know, this higher status. It's not like it's unattainable. It's not like any person can go out and see horn lizards or some of the same species that I see. I mean, technically you can go out and find a giant garter snake and grab it. It's not likely that a bunch of police cars are going to come up on you and, you know, get you in trouble for it. But I guess what I like about it is that I feel like I get to work with some species that are imperiled. And I know all of my time and effort is going towards research and education and conservation of the species. So it makes me feel good knowing that, you know, all my work is going towards the better good. Um, but honestly, it's not, it's not unattainable. It's not unrealistic to be able to get into this field. And like I said, it's not as glamorous as it might seem like many days we don't catch anything. Many days it's just going out looking for stuff, not catching anything or just collecting data. That's not as exciting. Um, but really a lot of people can, can get into it. A lot of people can see a lot of the same stuff. You know, you don't necessarily always have to grab and handle stuff to appreciate nature and, and see stuff in C2, which is actually sometimes a lot more interesting because you can kind of spy on them and you can see a lot of their natural behavior and things that they wouldn't normally do if they were being like tossed and turned around in your hand and gawked at. So um, I don't really know where I'm going with all of that, but I, I really love my job. I love the field that I'm in and it's been really rewarding. So horn lizards and for forgive my ignorance on it, but aren't there horn lizards that shoot blood out of their eyes? Yes, there are. Not all horn lizards do it, though. Okay. Just, Did yours do it? Um, well, the flat-tailed horn lizards do not. I, I don't know the list off the top of my head, but there are flat-tailed horn lizards and I think two or three other species that are definitely known not to shoot blood, whereas Blainville's horn lizards, the horn lizards that I, that was actually the first species I ever saw. We have them crawling around on my parents' property. Those ones do. They definitely shoot blood. But you really got to aggravate them before that happens. And actually, I got my first blood shot at, for the first <laughs> time, <laughs> just, just like a month ago. In all of my years, like grabbing lizards and looking at them, I, this was the first time I actually, it actually happened. And I was startled. Like I really was. I, I thought I heard it in some way. And then I realized that it was coming from its eye. And I was like, oh, geez, I guess I really antagonized it. Now I feel really bad, but I'm still going to collect some photos on it and then release it. So wow. yeah. Congratulations. Big things are happening. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so you took photos of it. Were you, did it's blood, was it's blood on you? 
a little bit on my hand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know how excessive this blood shot <laughs> yeah, was. How, I didn't how know, is like, is, is it why a widespread? <laughs> There's a, a really cool video on, on YouTube, which you can just Google, like, horn lizard shooting blood. blood. <laughs> and it's the most, yeah, it's like the most dramatic, um, cinematic film of a horned lizard being I think it's a Texas horned lizard I'm not sure it being antagonized by a coyote and they've got this great like all these great shots of it like shooting blood like straight up into the coyote's face and it's like this perfect storyline and when I caught it I didn't even I didn't see anything like eject like I just had some blood in my hands and I was like oh what is this I actually thought I cut myself and then I realized it was coming from the horned lizard. So I don't have much experience with it. Maybe other people do. Maybe there's some papers on it. We could check out how far horned lizards shoot blood. <laughs> what is the world record? Guinness World Re- Book of World Records. <laughs> so how big does a horned lizard get? Um, it depends on species. Um, I think generally, overall, they can... Kind of fit in the palm of your hand some some are bigger some are smaller um hatchlings and neonates i mean they can be tiny like one gram like the, literally the size of your thumb which i realize is subjective depending on how big you how big your hands are but yeah they're not like yeah same so yeah it just depends on the, the species some there's a lot of variation in in other aspects like their horn length like flat-tailed horn lizards have the longest horns um other ones like um, pygmy shorthorn lizards have really short horns. That was always a pain to try and like measure with calipers. It's like um, 0.1 millimeters. Like I don't know as as best as I can. So that's 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 cool. Like there's a lot of variation there. But as far as overall size, I I'd say generally all in the same ballpark. Do they all eat ants? I believe so. And I mean, they are ant obligates, but they also will eat other stuff too. I mean, the majority are ants, but I think they're also known to eat um, other small insects as well. Cool. So um, obviously you're not focusing on like the breeding in the wild, but like what have you observed or things like that as far as the breeding process with these lizards? I've only seen one pair of horned lizards mating and it was really cool because we were out tracking one of our females and we we're looking for her and we we're looking for her. And all of a sudden we like see her on the ground and she's got this male like kind of on top of her, like twisted to the side with her horn in his mouth. I mean, he's like really got her and she's got this antenna on her too. Um, and uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's totally uncomfortable. <laughs> I have a really shitty photo of it on my Instagram that you can see, but it's just like I I, I did my best with my phone zoom, but it was a really cool thing. Um, <clears throat> so that's the only time I actually got to see them mating in the wild. But as you may or may not know, some species of horned lizards are viviparous, others are oviparous. So some will have live birth, as will lay eggs. Um, these ones laid eggs and I mean it's the same with snakes too but yeah unfortunately I don't get to see very many um copulations in the wild have you seen a female ever laying eggs actively laying eggs no No. um I don't know what the biology is on all the other horn lizards but the flat tails they actually go underground and lay their eggs there so it's unlikely that we would ever see it 
Yeah. So there's no like, uh, you know, taking the eggs in, incubating them and then doing, you know, releasing them. Um, there, I think there might be, uh, with like some laboratory studies, uh, I don't know what other research people are doing on them, but I'm sure there's like captive bred lizards and just kind of like what we're supposed to do with the tegu is like take the eggs and incubate them. I can't say that I know anyone personally doing that, but I wouldn't be so. I think there are, have been introductions. Yeah. I think some zoo did, did some captive breeding and introduction. I don't, I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head. I'll have to look that up. Um, I think, think why do i think that there is something going on with either dallas or fort worth and then whatever the horn lizard is that's around tcu like the actual it's a frog i thought what's that oh, a frog. well yeah they call it a toad but it's it's the horn lizard oh. <laughs> at least yeah. i believe they call it the horny toad right yeah yeah oh never mind i think that's just like that's a low location thing it's just like a local <laughs> name for it no horny toads pretty widely used really? as a uh, yeah well i mean it's if you look at their their latin name like phrynosoma means um oh geez it's it's like yeah horned toad or, or toad like body and which they they don't take that same appearance as other lizards which tend to be more elongate they're kind of round and squat <clears throat> kind of like a toad and i think that name was given to them before people really knew what the distinction was between reptiles and amphibians. So yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, we hear horny toad in California too. It's not just a... Oh, wow. I assumed it was a different... Uh... <laughs> totally different animal. I thought it was a totally different yeah. animal. Okay. <laughs> Seems like it should be, right? With that name, that's very yeah. confusing. It is. It is. I like to say horn lizard to try and like, you know, teach yeah. people a different way. Yeah, it seems more correct. So did yeah. you say the forward Zoo is doing something with those? From what I saw, there's something going around in that area. I don't know anything specific, so I don't know. Something like that. This is when Google we, will help this us. This is when we need a dedicated sure. computer person um, to do these things. Yeah, yeah, look at that. But are there any other, um, where, what other species are there? So all I really know is like ones in Arizona, California, Texas. And that's yeah. all I know. Those are kind of the ones I'm more familiar with also. It's like in the Great Plains, um, in the Pacific Northwest, you have greater shorthorn lizards, um, pygmy shorthorn lizards, Texas horn lizards. You have Blainvilles. You have um, desert horn lizards, <clears throat> um, flat tails, of course, which extend into Mexico. There's regal horn lizards. Now that would be a lifer for me. Okay, I can answer that question. <laughs> At the end of our podcast, we got it. That would be nice. <laughs> um, a regal horn lizard would be nice to see in there in Arizona. I'm really hoping to see one next month when I get down there. They're beautiful. I mean, as their name suggests, regal. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of species I haven't seen that I would love to see. I mean, a shit ton in Mexico <clears throat> that are not as common. <clears throat> excuse me as as in the states or just maybe because we haven't gone looking for them so i would love to just go down there for a couple months looking for stuff cool. the stuff you always want to see is not where you live not the most convenient <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um okay so i just looked it up um and it says through a partnership with texas parts and wildlife um tcu a private landowner and the fort worth zoo 
um, located the first reintroduction site that fits the environmental and habitat models needed for the Texas horned lizard survival. Hey, um, all right, lizards, you're on it. Yeah, they hatched at the zoo and have been released. I see a lot of articles on Facebook. <laughs> and you read them. Yeah, so it says uh, they've been reintroduced and they're tracking them to determine the most effective um, reintroduction methods. And it says there's never been a successful ongoing horned lizard reintroduction program. And what's crazy is that since 2005, the zoo has bred more than 300 animals, produced more than 300 hatchlings, which is pretty crazy. That is cool. Yeah, because they're notoriously hard to keep in captivity. It's always recommended that people don't. Yeah, because it's like, how are you going to get ants constantly (laughs) and keep on feeding them ants and stuff? It's something I guess only a zoo would be able to have the resources Mm -hmm. to do. How big, I wonder, are the clutches? Do you know? I think it ranges from species, but at least with the flat tails, we would get three to maybe five. Not to say that there couldn't be six. Um, But yeah, it was generally around that. Pretty small. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't easily be getting uh, 300. Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) they can only fit so much in their bodies. And you, you would think that for such a small lizard and something that seems so prone to be picked off, you know, you would hope for more babies than that. Yeah. Well, I know they can have a couple clutches a year if they start off early enough and they can, you know, come up with a second clutch. So that helps. But yeah, they're, they're really interesting in that they have to rely a lot on their camouflage and they're holding still when, when being seen. Because they don't really have much else going for them. Not, you know, only some of them can do the blood squirting, not all of them. Uh, I know sometimes when you when we pick them up, they would sort of jab us with their their horns. They would kind of like poke us and that sort of hurts. But it's also kind of cute. So it doesn't really make you want to <laughs> say, oh, oh, you can go away now. It, yeah. But when you do like get up on one, they'll actually stay still. So oftentimes, yeah, it, it depends. Some will kind of freeze. Other ones will writhe around in your hand and try and escape oh but do you mean like when i approach them and they're on the ground yeah yeah like just if you need to collect them for data or anything like that yeah oftentimes they'll once they see you they'll run and then hold still really quick and run and then hold still um but i don't know it's it's like everyone is different sometimes i'll just go down and pick one up and it doesn't seem to mind other ones you really have to kind of go for so Probably just depends on what their temperature is and how they're feeling that day. Right. Okay. So one field, I feel like we're just kind of like bopping around America and all your spots you've been, but it's been nice. Um, So bopping to a new place, Kansas, we have to talk about uh, your time there. My time there was unfortunately very short. It was uh, saying that a lot to me, and it's (laughs) (laughs) they happen. A lot of a lot of field jobs are temporary, and they're very short. I mean, I think my longest one was six months. So it was like constantly packing, driving, packing, driving. But yeah, this one was even shorter. It was only two months because that was the time in which the prairie chickens were were lecking. which what is, is lecking? Yeah, so a lek is kind of like a, it's like a group of birds that are getting together and the males will try and impress the females with some sort of display. In this case, with prairie chickens, both lesser and greater prairie chickens, they have this awesome little dance that they do for the females that we got to see. 
Um, and you can YouTube it and check out way better videos than any that I've gotten. But basically the males will sort of like, it'll be a combination of them like bowing down, inflating their vocal pouches, which are like bright red or orange. And they'll sort of stomp their feet and make this sort of bellowing sound. And they'll do, they'll, they'll approach a female, do this little dance and she'll either kind of hang out there impressed or she'll like fly away unimpressed. And that's essentially what it is. It's like, it can be, up to, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think we saw up to 20 at one point, like males and females all gathered around just kind of doing this little dance. And it's not like some wild party where they're all like furiously dancing. <laughs> it's like, it's like quiet and slow. It's like intermittent, like one will kind of dance over here, a little bird will fly, another one oh. will dance over here. And a little, you know, it's not as exciting as it may sound. In my head, I can imagine like, <laughs> you know, um, what is it, like Samoan people and they're, <laughs> You know, the guys with the tattoos and they stick their tongue out and they're like, the haka. That's how I imagined it in my head. I mean, it probably seems that way to the females. I think to them, it's really exciting. But yeah, you should totally look up some videos. It's really awesome. And that job was really fun because it was pretty much my only bird job. It was super random, but I love Kansas. Um, And it was in, it was in West Kansas. So not as much going on. It was really slow and quiet and they're just you know like the most exciting thing was like a chester's chicken or something like there just wasn't anything going on for us to do when we weren't doing surveys but i think the coolest part of that job for me personally is that we did a combination of ground truthing surveys which is just looking at birds on the ground and aerial surveys so we got to fly in helicopters doing these line transects over several miles and just look out the window and count Lex, take a GPS point. And then the next day we would go and ground truth that same point and verify whether or not what we saw was what we saw. Cause they usually tend to stay in the same spot. So we would kind of flush them as we flew over, but then they will come back to their spot and hang out again. So we'd have to differentiate between uh, greater prairie chickens and lesser prairie chickens and try and get a count on them. So yeah, it was a cool job. It was just totally random. I don't really know how I got it with no bird experience, but um, it was fun. What makes one lesser than? I knew that was what I wanted to ask you. Um, It's just a, I mean, they're related. It's just a different uh, species. So I think, and don't quote me on this, but I believe the way to, the best way to tell them apart is by their call and also by the color of their vocal sacs. So males and greater prairie chickens, I believe, are lighter. They're more of a orangish yellow, whereas uh, lessers are a deeper orange or red. But I think there's probably a lot of other better ways to differentiate them that I don't know of. But those are the the two things that we would cue in on. And most of the time it was greater prairie chickens. So so you got the good ones. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty messed up, man. So what benefits did you get by like doing your helicopter rides when you were doing, when you were studying those? Like what, why did y'all need to do that? To ride in a helicopter? For a second, I thought you like flew the helicopter. I actually and- did one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was really cool. Probably not supposed to, but it was really cool. <laughs> and now I'm telling everyone. <laughs> Terrifying? Like... <laughs> But also Kansas really airspace, awesome. there's little laws. I'm sure. I'm sure you'll be <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was well, my pilot also does like training. So I was it was pretty legit. And we were only ever about like 80 90 feet off the ground. So it wasn't like we were really out there. But yeah, I had secretly hoped like all season that I would somehow like get a chance to do it. And it miraculously happened one day. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked. It was it was scary. It's it's pretty complicated. But um, it was fun. I think everyone was like white knuckling back there, but I was like, I got this, you guys, we're fine. So, and it was a small, it was a small helicopter. It just like squeezed in four people. So uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I just wanted to do that. And I think for two days we got to do just regular um, raptor surveys for um, hawks and eagles in the area. So that was fun too. I don't know. I just like being up there. I, I low key was like, okay, if wildlife doesn't work out, I'm going to go get my pilot's license and just learn how to fly helicopters. Cause it's so fun. Yeah. And I mean, imagine using them for that purpose. Yeah. If you can combine the two and, and do wildlife surveys. Yeah. It's a very specific person, huh? Yeah. You could get that helicopter license and you're off. Oh man, that'd be cool. So expensive though. I mean, I think the license just to you have, I don't know how much it is to do the training, but it's like a couple thousand dollars. And then you have all the maintenance and you have to like rent a helicopter. It seems like a lot of work. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And how is, um, how does that affect like the birds in the area? Obviously you're in a helicopter. Um, <clears throat> it seems loud and it would disturb birds. So, I mean, how are you effectively, um, you know, seeing the natural behaviors of things like raptors or the chickens and stuff like that? Well, with the prairie chickens, um, it was actually a good thing that we were disturbing them because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to see them there because when we fly over them, you flush them. And so they start flying and you have to circle back around, count how many you see and GPS it. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying about the disturbance. Fortunately, in Western Kansas, there's like no trees. So we didn't see very, I mean, that's not true. There obviously are trees, but we didn't see very many birds out there. Um, when we did the raptor surveys, we would circle around a nest with a, a hawk and they kind of just crouched down. They didn't seem too disturbed by it. I'm sure it was disturbing to them, but that's not really something that I asked about or really thought much about that's a good question i'm sure it was disturbing i mean it disturbed cows too i mean they really just started to like stampede once we flew over them and the farmers were not happy about that because i don't know the cows were exercising too much they wouldn't be fat enough to eat i have no idea but we would get an angry call from a farmer later like oh sorry they got some cardio today but uh yeah i don't know that is a good question i'm sure it, i'm sure it does disturb stuff i never really saw many birds just flying nearby us and maybe that's because we scared them away. I don't know. It's a good thing. To yeah. Think. Well, either way, you got to ride in helicopters. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <you> really can. <laughs> that's the most important part. Of me. course. And you got to see cool bird dances. Yeah. Dude, definitely look that up. They're pretty cool. Uh, I have lots of things to look more into. <laughs> uh, I think I yeah. The blood, <laughs> the blood from the eyes. Mm -hmm. I need to see a shike pinning something. Right. Like, yeah. like five things on my list now. Yeah, we're gonna be out <laughs> somewhere flagged for all these. Yeah, someone's gonna be like, what is this history? Yeah. <laughs> Promise we don't have a problem with looking at animals die. Um, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> So it seems like on Instagram and stuff like that, I mean, you even highlight 
obviously a bunch of birds and like you said, like flowers and stuff like that. So it seems like you are interested in more than obviously just herbs. Yeah, absolutely. I try not to pigeonhole myself with just reptiles and amphibians. And obviously I do have like a love for mammals and plants and birds and insects, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard. Like you, one thing just sort of hits you in the face and it really catches you and that's what you're really interested in. But I think over time I've started to realize that looking at the bigger picture and seeing how all of these things are interconnected um, is so much more fascinating than just like, look at this cool snake. It's got a rattle. Um, But it's like, Oh, why does it have a rattle? And how does this one hunt versus this one and stuff like that. So I've been trying to sort of branch out and, learn about more things. I mean, I I learned about a bunch of different taxonomic groups in college, but the system in which, you know, you have to go through as a student is so much more different than just learning on your own. It's like you have X amount of time to learn X amount of information. You better cram it. You better regurgitate it on your tests. For me personally, I couldn't really retain a lot of that information. So even though I've taken several plant taxonomy and botany courses, I don't know a lot of stuff. And even though I've taken ornithology and memology, it's like there's still a lot of things that slip my mind. So I want to try and revisit a lot of that stuff and kind of relearn it on my own pace and on my own time. Um, because I've already been there. So it's be nice to go back and be more well rounded. Well, you totally just answered my next question. Um, <laughs> so um, as like an outsider's perspective, like looking at your Instagram, I'm like, oh my gosh, she knows so much about like every little thing, you know, like not just this species, not just this type of animal, but like flowers and these plants. And I'm like, who can keep the Latin name of all these things in their head that she's posting about? Um, and my question was going to be like, how much about the plants and other stuff did you learn in college? But it's interesting to know that you took kind of classes in all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, when you post stuff on on social media, it's like you can look it up beforehand and you can, I don't have all of the scientific (laughs) names memorized. I've got some memorized, but I don't think it's all that important. I just like to offer both the common and the Latin name because they both have value. But yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, I think I've, I've definitely taken more botany classes than I have herb classes. And yet I know more about that just because on my own time and in my field, like I learned about it. But I really want to try and get back into other stuff. It's just like finding the time and sometimes motivation to do it. So, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it's like sometimes, like you said, you don't find things every day. So I'm sure there's plenty of other things that you want to look into in order to keep yourself busy. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We've got some sites where there's a lot of dragonflies and damselflies, a lot of really cool plants or birds nesting. And it's like, oh, that really catches your eye. And that's really interesting. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess that really brings us back to like present day, um, California, what you're doing now. Um, so what is, uh, explain a little bit of what you do at, at this very moment. I know you explained a little bit in the beginning, but just a little bit more in depth. Yeah. So I work for a consulting firm in Sacramento and, um, we work with these, um, a lot of amphibian and reptile species that have some sort of special status to them. And we work in wetlands trapping for a giant garter snake. So what we're doing is trying to 
a lot of these wetlands are artificial wetlands. They're constructed. They're constructed for giant garter snakes, and we want to see how well they're doing. So we'll put traps out there and catch the snakes and see how many of each age class or um, whatever sex and basically see if um, they're doing well or not. We'll also work at construction sites where we do um, a lot of monitoring and compliance and making sure that none of the animals are injured or harassed um, in any way. And that's the less exciting part of, of the job. And then we also do trainings You know, we do a lot of, um, educational trainings on some of these species. And that to me is really exciting because I love being able to like take people out or we'll have people come out and look at these species and learn about them and see how excited they get and like get people who don't like snakes to hold snakes and like snakes. So there's different aspects of the job that I find more rewarding than others, but overall it's all a really good learning experience and, um, kind of new to me. So it's, it's been fun and it's not boring. You know, there's always something different happening. It's not like Monday to Friday, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, Monday and Wednesday, I'm doing this. And then Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I do that. And oh, looks like I have to come in on the weekend and do this. So it's always changing. It's really dynamic. A lot of stuff's happening. Um, and it's all generally centered around reptiles and amphibians. So I can't really complain. It's been pretty nice. So do you keep a, a few natives on hand just for educational purposes, or do you actually go to the field, collect the native, and then give the educational program? Both. So for the recent trainings we did, we went out to one of our wetland sites, and we caught giant garter snakes and brought them up to people and showed them that way. Um, for some of the classroom settings, we'll bring in some of our own snakes. So my boss has some of his own snakes. He's got some... Um, mountain king snakes, some California king snakes, two really beautiful alterna, and we'll bring those in. And um, you, those are better for education because they're kind of used to being handled and um, taken care of in the shop. So yeah, we'll, we'll do a bit of both. We'll definitely show people how to survey for certain species based on um, you know protocols and basically kind of help them to get their permit or to get enough experience to be on someone else's permit, which is kind of where we're at. Right. And you know, what's funny is that we actually have a friend <laughs> who to say that. lives in Sacramento and he works at, is it the Sacramento? I'm assuming it's the Sacramento Zoo. He said they have the only giant garter snake in North America. Oh, really? In captivity? Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, she's doing stuff with garter cool. snakes. Like, how crazy. Um, and he said they work with uh, UC Davis on giant garter snake stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, we were doing a project where we would bring in gravid females and um, get radiographs of them to see what stage their eggs and their, their babies were in or just count how many there were. So we brought snakes in a bit to the zoo last summer to see that. And it was really cool to see some pictures of them. There's a photo, I think, up on my Instagram, one that a pretty gravid female we caught kind of near the end of the season. Then if you swipe, you'll see the radiograph and you can actually like count the little babies in there. Wow. Yeah. Crazy small world. Yeah, that <laughs> is. <laughs> what Riley's doing and stuff. That's pretty cool. He said they have a couple of Head Start programs going with a few litters of babies. So that right must now. have been kind of what you guys did Similar. is bring in 
a gravid female and then they head start babies and then could release them in the future? That wasn't with our project. I did hear about the head start project and I, I think I know someone who was involved with that, but us, we just released the snake back into the wild the next day. We were just looking to see if they were um, actively reproducing. But yeah, I have heard of the head starting and I think it's awesome. Is that a species that is seeing like a lot of encroachment? I can imagine only, you know, California. I mean, they must be experiencing some type of encroachment or do they kind of thrive on it like some of our other garter snakes? Yeah, it's an interesting story with GGS and I'm by no means an expert on it. This is all just kind of what I've been learning since I got hired on the job. But they, they're a species that's endemic to the Central Valley, which is, um, you know, naturally a big wetland and it's been drained and converted for urbanization and agriculture and the snakes have lost over 70 percent of their historic range so the numbers are really really low compared to what they used to be and they're still dwindling mostly because of habitat loss i mean that's just the driving force so we're not seeing as many as we used to in the past however because they're semi-aquatic snakes they do manage to still thrive in <clears throat> rice fields because rice fields need to be flooded with water and um, drained. Unfortunately, the seasonality of giant garter snakes doesn't correlate with the seasonality of flooding rice fields. Like they're flooded in the time when snakes are not act not as active versus when they're inactive. So I know snakes have also found refuge in wetland systems that are designed for waterfowl, which is great. I mean, people want to hunt waterfowl, but it works out to the garter snake's advantage. So even though they have lost a lot of their native habitat, it's still kind of refreshing to see that they managed to persist in some um, new habitats, even, even if they might be um, artificial. So they're, they're pretty hardy snakes, but I mean, you know, when, when you take a, a pond and put a, housing development over it, the snakes can only do so much. Right. And is that a common issue? I mean, with the species up there, I mean, habitat loss, that kind of thing. It's a common issue with biodiversity worldwide. I mean, everything is affected <clears throat> in some way by habitat loss, climate change, um, you know, disease, all this other stuff. But I, I think conversion of native habitat into artificial shopping malls, for example, is, is, you know, there's nowhere else for them to go. So they, they perish and yeah, it affects species like the giant garter snake. It also affects red-legged frogs and tiger salamanders and rattlesnakes and, you know, what have you. So what is like the everyday person's role in this kind of thing? Like how can we, <laughs> what you know, how can we affect this and stop fucking everything up? Oh, that's a big question. That's a good question. Um, God, I mean, there's there's so much to do. And I, I think that in itself is really overwhelming for people because, you know, we all have our own lives and how do we manage to save the world and also like survive ourselves. So I, I think it all depends on sort of what's in your realm of capability and what you know that you can reasonably like dedicate yourself to doing or not doing just kind of i think being aware and conscious of what your actions are doing um is kind of like the first step i mean i'm always advocating for like 
it's super trendy right now, but like not using single use plastic, like using your reusable containers, trying to recycle more, collect Mylar balloons when they're out in the field. Don't buy fucking Mylar balloons because they're just floating trash bags that get distributed all across the country. But I buy a little note to them and send them to a friend. <laughs> and then it pops in and they get it. Yeah. And then a sea turtle eats them and drowns, but. <laughs> yeah, I always wonder why it's not it's not littering if you like make it into a lantern it's also, or a balloon. Okay, you know, I was like, just about to ask that. Are lanterns bad? Like are lanterns not. bad for animals? The little, you know, like they do. It's I'm like, assuming by now they'd be biodegradable, right? You'd hope, but still, but even, why are you doing even it? Even like biodegradable balloons take a really long time to biodegrade, and by the time they biodegrade, an animal's already found them and eaten them, so they don't biodegrade fast enough for that to happen. So really biodegradable balloons are just not even a good option just get someone a burrito or a beer instead it's a it's a way better <laughs> gift trust me i would much yeah, rather I have like, that. I like burritos and beer <laughs> more than i like balloons yeah right it, you know maybe it doesn't last as long but it's more enjoyable <laughs> but anyways back to your question yeah it's like little things you can do to help um, and also like you can educate people as best you can um, you know as far as like habitat loss I don't I don't know that we have any power really to change that except for sort of you know educate yourself on who is in control of these productions but generally you don't know so that's kind of a, a bigger hurdle I don't know it's that's a hard one just I guess do whatever little part you can and try and learn more and talk to people more, communicate these ideas and just do the best you can do. You know, don't release your pets. Um, build a catio. <laughs> <laughs> don't buy Mylar balloons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just hard. It seems like, I mean, no matter what, we're living in a capitalistic society in which we have a very high standard of living also. So it's like... And also very specific. I mean, I'm sorry. It's hard for me to give up my straws. Like, it's I been a you. really hard thing. I've been trying the whole paper straw thing, and I just... Oh, paper that. straws suck. I mean, they it's just, like, melt in your mouth. Yeah, They're the worst. Yeah, you're just, like, sucking on, like, soggy paper. Paper. Have you looked at the metal straws? They even have metal straws with, like, a little plastic end or bamboo straws. Those are nice. Okay. See, I don't know the one. My thing against metal straws has always been because I'm weird and I'm a straw biter. Oh, when this is the perfect solution for you. They have metal straws that are not only straws, but they bend and they've got this like rubber coating at the end. So you can like gnaw away all you want. You don't have to worry about it being too cold with ice strings. I definitely oh recommend checking them out. That solves my problem. <laughs> so or you can take your hand place it around the cup and drink from it actually so. no i'm with melissa on this i like i like straws it's enjoyable iced coffee i mean you don't want all that right and, ice clanking on your teeth. and the ice I, I put ice in a lot of stuff and you know my teeth are sensitive and so <laughs> just... then you get to that point where the ice is stuck at top and you shake it and then it 
goes into your face. Yes, do that yeah. a little bit more, babe. Uh, <laughs> just be like deep throat. <laughs> yeah, it's a safety hazard. <laughs> um, okay, totally different question that I definitely meant to ask earlier. Um, but whenever in life you decide that you're ready to like not move every three months, do you see yourself ever having like a personal collection of animals? Uh, I don't think I would ever be interested in like a collection of animals. I would definitely like a pet at some point for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been hard. Like you said, like, it's just, I always have to move. I can't drag things across country and I'm not willing to stay behind for something, but we, we tried to breed our Alterna this last season and unfortunately didn't get any eggs, but I was like prepared to take, uh, a baby of those which would have been so cool because both the parents are really neat and like I get to feed them and so yeah I was like really excited for that didn't happen but you know maybe next year we'll try again and I'll get one other than snakes though I'd love to get a dog I've had puppy fever lately and I'd love to have a dog but I live in a little apartment you know I don't I'm like right now I'm in another city I, I constantly have to like move and work long hours it just wouldn't be fair to whatever animal I got to be left alone all the time. I want to, you know, spend all my time with it. So yeah, eventually, you know, when I have a boring job where I'm not doing all this stuff, I'd love to have an animal. I'd love to have, you know, dog or even a cat or snakes or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's something that, I mean, a dog is (laughs) such an, especially when you're, you know, if you are moving all over the place and like, it's, super hard to take care of a dog in the in the first place just especially when it's a puppy and you gotta mess with it all you gotta day. be there a lot you're in the mm-hmm. field all day so you can't like come home and do what you gotta do and exactly i mean besides snakes do you guys have like Even normal Donald, pets who i'm surprised hasn't oh cool in here yet yeah um but just a dog and we've and we've moved around and done everything but it's been really it's so much more time. difficult to move with snakes yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you guys probably have more than just a couple. So I'd imagine. Um, yeah, Thankfully, I don't have to worry about it. But someone else does and had to drive 22 hours straight from Dallas to Philadelphia. Oh, my God. All snakes. But before that, I did upstate New York to uh, Colorado. That was my longest with the snakes and with the dog. Oh, oh my God. That's right. Maybe about 30 hours. Damn. <laughs> so not happy. So I... <clears throat> He probably had like six He's red balls. Temps, mm. regular. Yes, also you. Normal range, yeah, that's really it. Getting hot in eighty-two degree. You know, yeah, making your car, car eighty-two for all mm. those while thirty hours. Yeah, I don't. It's it's not that bad. Yeah, that's I don't if know. That sounds rough. You'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> you could just ship it to wherever you're going. Yeah, true. You ship it to someone to whatever place you're working at. And then bam, that's it. Yeah. I'm surprised how like hardy these animals are with shipping, especially colubrids. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be totally fine with it. But wow. Okay, my last question: Where in the world do you want to go? Like, what's your number mm-hmm. one place to go for herbs? Oh, for herbs! Wow. Um, geez. Probably. I feel like since I've been to Latin America already, it's probably a tie between Asia and Australia because those are just so 
foreign to me. And I think both places just have the coolest species. And well, then again, Africa too. (laughs) I'm like throwing out continents here. Not even like, (laughs) I'm not even trying to boil it down. Uh, Yeah. Well, those are, yeah, those are all three places that I haven't been to yet. So I would be more than happy to go to any of them. If someone wants to buy me a ticket. I'll be there. <laughs> hey, but there's a grant you could write. Or <laughs> oh God, I know. Or get some sort of grad project. I know people do like master's programs in other countries. I just don't know how. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a little more difficult, but it's definitely attainable. So yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. I just want to travel more and go to other places. Have you guys been to any good ones or have Not any? No. Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, I didn't even know what the word herps meant before two years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, so I pretty much got her into it. So, not why. pretty much, hundred percent, most definitely, never would have happened in a million years with her. Nice. So, <laughs> but she's herp Texas. She's seen copperheads. That's about it. We went herping on the trail in Philly. We call it herping two minutes from our house and hoping to see a box turtle while aimlessly walking. I think that's what it was. <laughs> that's Hey, that's herping. If you yeah. look up in the sky, it's called birding. <laughs> um, we went herping ish in New York and um, not in Fishkill, but uh, Beacon. Yeah. So yeah, not real herping. No, he wants us to go to Costa Rica really bad. Oh yeah. Who doesn't want to go to Costa Rica? I haven't been to Costa Rica yet. That's definitely a destination. But I mean, I would probably just as much rather probably be in Peru. Yeah. I see the the Brazilian rainbow boas and the tree boas. And mm-hmm. I think there's even emerald tree boas there. But I think those are pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are actually like the uh, the Amazon basin, uh, the Amazon basin animals, oh, the, the, uh, the baits eye. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You just went go everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do it. Well, it seems like it seems like your life trajectory is in that direction. I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of traveling. Even around. more, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Now you just need to go uh, get on a King Cobra project. Yeah, that would be sweet. Yeah, I bet they're not posting that on the Texas A&M. Uh... They are actually oh, really. Yeah, I actually applied for a, a unpaid, I guess, internship there in Thailand. And I got an interview for it. And then I was offered a second interview for it. But I was in Peru at the time. And the time difference, the hours threw me off and I missed it. And they said they went with someone else, which was unfortunate. But, you know, that's just how it goes. Um, But yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. um, I think it's the Sakurat um, field station. But they do post it. I think if you just Google, like... You, they do. They take volunteers, and you have to be somewhat qualified to do. I, I know a few people who've done radio tracking and who are working on projects out there on Instagram too. You can just stalk them and hit them up for questions. But I definitely wanted to do that at one point, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, and there's actually another Hurt podcast with a guy who is actually involved in a King Cobra study. Cool. It's slipping. It's slipping my mind the name of the podcast, and I feel bad. Um, but it's basically like a very. Um, they basically go over like scientific papers. You know, herp related oh, papers. Oh, I saw and that. Discuss it. Yeah. Uh, herpological highlights. That's what it's called. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's a cool podcast if anyone wants to look up or, uh, and he did King Cobra stuff. But, uh, 
Brandon in the chat said his dream is to herp PNG, Papua New Guinea, and die of malaria. <laughs> That's a little bit more intense than we're going, Brandon. But, uh, but you are the first comment on the screen. I like how you deemed that as the one <laughs> there. Like that was of all the things. That's what you chose. Yeah, why not? It's Brandon special. <laughs> um, well, Kyla, if someone wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way they can reach you? Oh, um, I guess through Instagram. Yeah. Just send me a DM. Is it I'm sorry, is and it is Kyla that... Garden? Yeah, I forgot what's your like it's Kai Garten, so it's just KY oh, and then yeah. my last name. Yeah. And it's public, so yeah, and check it out. She has awesome photos. And damn, I forgot to ask you about that rubber boa that you found. Because that's one species that like I really <laughs> love. And uh... you must not love it that much if you. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it took you two hours to ask about it. Sorry. And we've talked about Instagram a lot. <laughs> I thought about it a lot. Oh. Just didn't ask. And... Okay, well, what's your Can question about it? So uh, what's the what's the background of that animal? Obviously, you found it somewhere in California, but yeah, um, a friend showed me a spot, and that's all I can tell you. <laughs> Jeff Lynn told us about the secret California spots. I mean, yeah, it you know obviously it was around here, and it was my first and only rubber boa, and it was kind of just uh, it wasn't even our target species. We were looking for Damnophis atratus, and we just pulled off the side of the road and flipped at this spot and lo and behold there it was and it was really cool really really cool definitely uh a target species that i wasn't even targeting that day so yeah i mean they're they're here you know check out iNaturalist and just do some some exploring and yeah yeah it seems like something that people deem as pretty rare but i've seen a bunch of california herpers uh post them up all the time mm -hmm. yeah uh, just Interesting animal. A little side note. A little fat worms. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. See, I told you we do a lot of stories, and you have such great stories. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you guys. This was fun. Yeah, it was yeah, awesome. Thanks. It was easy. Um, thank you to everyone who has watched and in the chat. The audio version of this will be available tomorrow or the next day on all the things: Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud anywhere you can find podcasts, it will be there. Um, we will see you guys at Haver to Grace on Saturday. We have t-shirts available. We have snakes available. You can find us on Port City Pythons on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, portcitypythons.com. Have I said everything? How many times do we have to say Port City Pythons? I don't know. I feel like I was missing things. There you go. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. And, uh, Kyla, thanks for being here, and we will catch you all next week. Yes. Bye.